0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The shots ring out in an empty house. The woman falls to the ground in the bathroom and soon she is gone. The man that's taken her life gets in her car and starts to drive away. he can't run from the secrets he carries. And for one family, the fight of a lifetime is about to begin. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to episode 87, The Murder of Captain Anna-Marie Portgita. The first of August sees the start of Women's Month, so it's the perfect time to binge-watch both seasons of the CBS original true crime series The Real Prime Suspect on DSTV 170. Hosted by former Scotland Yard detective Jackie Moulton, the inspiration behind the drama series Prime Suspect, starring Helen Mirren, The Real Prime Suspect revisits infamous cases firsthand with the investigating teams watch both seasons back-to-back weeknights on CBS Justice from Monday the 1st of August at 8pm. A huge thank you to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Savannah Hope, Vanessa Slater, Ujimari, Samantha Forster, Natasha DeSilva, and Alyssa Rudd for your support on Patreon, as well as Andre Faree for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. In addition to the shout-out and monthly exclusive episode that Patreons get, I also now upload an ad-free version of every week's episode to Patreon, so if you prefer not to hear the ads head over to Patreon and sign up for a minimum monthly contribution of just $1, which at the moment is about 16 rand. It's a pretty good deal. If you like discounts, because who doesn't, head over to King Online for your health and beauty needs, print Crowd for all your printing requirements, and use the code TCSA10 at checkout for 10% discount and support the show at the same time and you can also get 10% off when you order from Wallpaper Online by using the code TRUECRIME at checkout. Other forms of support that make a huge difference include following the show on social media, inviting your friends, family, postman, hairdresser and parole officer to listen, and leaving reviews on the podcast platform you use. During Women's Month, which is coming up in August in South Africa, I wanted to celebrate some of the amazing women who, through their work, contribute to justice for victims of crime in South Africa. So when Lorraine Esterhazen contacted me to ask whether I would discuss her sister Anna Marie's case on the podcast, it seemed like an absolutely perfect fit to kick off August 2022 with her story. And I was lucky enough to have Lorraine chat with me about her sister. Please do note that although an accused was found guilty of Anna Marie's murder, there was another person alleged to have been involved who was not prosecuted, and you will hear me name them. As always, everyone is presumed innocent until found guilty in a court of law, and it is not my intention to cast aspersions of guilt against anyone. Rather, in referencing this individual, I'll refer to court judgments and reports in the media which would be found during a subsequent defamation case to be fair and protected. So let's get into episode 87, the murder of Captain Anna-Marie Porquita.
1: The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes.
0: Whenever I can, I really prefer for those who knew a victim to be involved in the making of an episode. And I'm very grateful to have Lorraine Esterhazen, Anna-Marie's sister, telling much of the story in this episode. So let's kick off with Lorraine telling us a bit more about her sister and their childhood.
1: Anna-Marie was my sister. Um, she was born in 1966 to a very loving family. We, have, we were a very close family. We always knew everything about each other. Um, me and her grew up very close, especially as we always had to share a room. She was four years older than me and always, always wanted to join the police since she was a little girl. The end of my trick when she applied they declined her for, I can't even remember what the reason was, but it was rather, it was very bad on her. She then went on to UJ to study law, of which she did three years, and then again applied to get into the police. So being a little girl, she was always a tough one, the um, very tough, um, stern, lots of fun as well, but she always stood up for me and my sister. She would do anything to protect us. She tried to protect everybody. Since I can remember, like we would get into a fight on the school bus and she would go sort out the boy who pulled my older sister's hair. Um, she was always the protector, always looking out for us. Anna-Marie's desire to be
0: a member of the SAPS was no doubt inspired by the fact that the Port are a family with deep roots in the service. Anna-Marie was the middle daughter, with Lorraine being the youngest and their sister Jessie being the oldest. But as you heard Lorraine say, Anna-Marie just had that protective spirit. She took it upon herself to be the person who stood up for others, and that innate desire for justice would stand her in good stead in a career as a police officer. I think it says a lot about Anna-Marie, that although she completed a law degree and could easily have gone on to qualify and work as a lawyer, and likely earn a heck of a lot more money than she would in the SAPS. That wasn't what drove her. Despite being turned down by the SAPS once, she went on to apply again, and eventually
1: her dream came true. So she then joined the police in 1991, uh, went to the college First went out to Cape Town, was stationed there for a while. Then she came back and she went into child protection. As she was as a young girl, she was very strict on her job. She was very committed. She was very hardworking. Anna Marie was always still looking out for us, for my parents who were then elderly. My mom had a stroke and she was in a wheelchair, and Anna Marie always made sure that she saw them, that she got their medicines to them.
0: Anna-Marie would eventually end up at the Child Protection and Sexual Offences Investigation Unit in Bononi. She was a formidable detective and involved in some of the most high-profile child abuse cases in that region. One such case was that of the serial paedophile and rapist Peter Putter. She also rescued a five-year-old boy known only as Baby H., From deplorable abuse. These were just a few of the cases Anna Marie was involved in during her ten years with the Child Protection Unit. In 2005, Anna Marie received news that she was going to be promoted to the rank of superintendent. She was over the moon, and it was all she could talk about. Anna Marie's life was coming together beautifully. She was successful in a career she loved, she was renovating her home in Pretoria planning on buying a new vehicle and she was in a relationship with her boyfriend, Peter Brunt. With her promotion coming though, Anna Marie shared that she might want to move into a different focus of investigation. Understandably, the emotional toll of working with abused children was becoming a bit much.
1: The end of 2005, she was with us for Christmas She then said to me on Christmas Day that she's had enough of child protection. She can't handle all of these broken children, broken families, and these poor kids not knowing how to live the rest of their lives after being abused or uh, whatever had happened to them. So Christmas, she said that she had kind of, she couldn't handle all of this anymore. It was becoming a bit much. And, well, obviously, we just all listened and we were like, yeah, you say this now, but you're never going to leave child protection because that was actually her passion. That's what she did. Um, She stood up like when we were kids for whoever couldn't stand up for themselves. So she still did the same.
0: So although her family didn't really think Anna Marie would ever leave child protection, the world really was her oyster. She made a point of continuing her education and in January 2006 she was on study leave as she prepared for an exam she was writing on child psychology. Her and her boyfriend Peter Brunt did not live together but while she was on leave she decided to go and stay with him at his plot in Vereniging. Peter and Anna Marie had been together for some time, their relationship had not always been smooth sailing and Lorraine said that they had broken up at one point and then got back together again. This second iteration of the relationship had only been going for two months. Peter had been a member of the SAPS for 10 years in the 80s and 90s. He'd been married and had two children from that marriage before he divorced. I asked Lorraine what her experience was of Peter and Anna Marie's relationship, and she said that from her perspective, It seemed to her as though Anna-Marie was a lot more invested in the relationship than Peter was. In the week commencing the 16th of January 2006, Anna-Marie was staying at Peter Brunt's home. She was due to write her exam later that week, so while Peter worked, she started her days by cycling. Then she returned to the plot, and she would bathe, get dressed, and start studying. Peter Brunt was going to be away for work for a few days that week. Accounts differ as to whether he was going to be away for the Monday, Tuesday and return on the Wednesday, or whether it was just the Tuesday. Brunt told police he'd left in the early hours of Tuesday the 17th, and last saw Anna Marie at the gates at 6.30am when they said goodbye. Although the couple were in the habit of speaking on the phone at least once a day, Peter and Anna Marie did not speak on the phone on the night of Tuesday, the 17th of January. Peter would later say he hadn't had air time to call her. He did not appear to find it strange that Anna Marie also did not call him that night, even though she was alone, save for the workers that lived on the land, on an isolated rural property. On the morning of Wednesday the 18th of January 2006 Peter returned to the area he lived and worked in. He told police that he tried to phone Anna Marie from both his work and the workplace of his brother but she wasn't answering. From the information available to me there are two accounts of what happened next. One is that he'd returned to the house to find that Anna Marie's car was gone and she was not in the house. The other is that he started phoning her co-workers at the CPU, and when he realised they also didn't know where she was, he'd asked some of them to come with him to the house. Either way, when Brunt walked into his house, he found his bathroom covered in blood. Lorraine says that he would later tell police that he'd thought two of his employees had had a fight in the bathroom. At some point in that day, Brunt claims to have made a call to an investigator at the local SAP's office and opened a missing persons docket for Anna-Marie. This claim was one of many that would be left unchecked on the paperwork I saw, meaning that the claim had never been verified. At no point during this time was anyone from Anna-Marie's family advised that she was missing. Then, late on the evening of the 18th of January 2006, a gruesome discovery was made at a rubbish dump close to Brunt's home. At quarter to 11pm, Dr P.J. Skutter, a district surgeon and pathologist, was contacted by Inspector Steyn of Vereniging Police. The doctor was asked to attend a scene at which the discovery of a deceased female had been made. In his report, Dr. Skutter describes arriving at the informal rubbish dump area to find a woman, who by that time had been identified as Captain Anna-Marie Porquita, lying on her left side. She was naked, and several injuries were evident on her body. Rigor mortis had already set in, and it was clear that the woman had been there for several hours. It would later be determined that Anna-Marie had sustained three gunshot wounds. There were other wounds, though, that spoke to a struggle, and her arm was broken. Peter Brunt was on the scene, and according to Lorraine, he assured members of SAPS that Anna Marie's family had been alerted and were on their way. But Anna Marie's family had not been alerted. They were none the wiser.
1: My parents had been trying to get hold of her for two days as she was going to write an exam on the 17th of January, a final in criminology, and. Couldn't get hold of her. Um, The morning of the 19th, my mum phoned the police station and asked she could speak to Anna Marie, and she was told that Anna Marie was deceased.
0: This is how Anna Marie's parents found out that their highly decorated police captain daughter was dead. But the shock didn't stop there. Lorraine recalls getting the phone call that changed her life.
1: On the 19th of January, I was at work when I got a call from my dad and he said, just leave everything and come here. Obviously, like, what's wrong? What's wrong? You know, is it my children? What's wrong? And I I said, no, I, I, would, I have to know what's going on. And he said, Anna Marie had been killed. Rushed to my parents' house as I got there, started making phone calls, and then we heard, no, it was a farm attack. So I was a bit gobsmacked with a farm attack. Yeah, and then we were told that she was on the plot with her boyfriend at the time, Peter Don Brandt. I eventually got hold of his number and phoned him and asked, listen, what's going on? Um, So he said, no, Henri was killed two days before, on the 17th of January. I mean, that was a terrible, terrible shock. So this is the first time that we heard anything. By the time her family discovers
0: that she's deceased, the investigation into Anna-Marie's murder is well underway. Her body has been transported to Ferenichung Mortuary for autopsy, and although this autopsy would later show that her death had indeed occurred on the 17th of January, I do find it interesting that this would already be public knowledge by the 19th. In fairness, the fact that she last been seen and heard from on that day could have led to the supposition by brunt and others at this time the mention of a farm attack likely came from the circumstances around anna marie's murder which had come to light after brunt's house became a crime scene investigators believed she'd been attacked in the bathroom and shot there and that her body had been transported to the rubbish dump covered with corrugated sheets and left there the latter point though doesn't really speak to a farm robbery gone wrong, because we almost never see the perpetrators of attacks of that nature attempting to conceal their victims' bodies. They just want to get out of there as quickly as they can. But with the location of the crime scene, and the fact that Anna Marie's vehicle was also missing, this was the initial thought.
1: Then the next minute, her, all the detectives started rocking up at the house, um, everybody who worked with her. And, and this immediately there was this, a lot of questions and no answers. It, it was weird. Okay, so it's a farm attack, but where were you? Why was she alone? Um, we were told that her body was found on the afternoon of the 18th of January on the small holding on a rubbish dump.
0: More questions than answers a theme that seems to pervade in this case, to this day. Soon after Anna Marie's body was discovered though, Pilly certainly seemed intent on arresting her killer. Peter Brunt noticed that one of his employees was missing and attention soon turned to 18-year-old John Dlawmore. Dlawmore had been employed by Brunt and lived in a room on the plot for almost two years. Glomo mostly tended to the gardens on the property and earned 600 rand per month for his work, plus free accommodation. Another employee and a friend of Glomo's, Justice Arthur Anthony, also occasionally worked on the property, but he said he hadn't seen anything suspicious and didn't know where Glomo was. An alert was put out for Anna Marie's vehicle, as well as for John Glomo, although at this point he would only have been a person of interest. Late on the 19th of August, a call came in from Saps in Harrysmith. A broken-down vehicle matching the description of Anna Marie's car had been picked up by a towing company. Inside the vehicle, police would find the fingerprints of John Glormo. Glormo had, after driving the car so poorly that the engine seized, taken a taxi back to Ferenikung. He telephoned his father to advise him that he was coming back and his father told the police. When Glormor arrived at the taxi rank, he was arrested. When John Glormor was brought in for questioning, police seized the clothing he was wearing. They found a blood stain on his pants, which would later be proven to be Anna Marie's. Inside the vehicle, they found a pair of women's running shoes, also stained with blood. Also, Anna Marie Porquita's. After being interviewed by police, Dormal provided a version of what had happened to Anna Marie. He also implicated another man, Justice Arthur Anthony, as having been complicit in transporting Anna Marie's body. On the 25th of January 2006, Captain Anna Marie Porquita was laid to rest.
1: Then we had the funeral. The funeral was a very big thing. Police were there in big force. And then the question started. We were told that three men were arrested for a killing. Um, they were going to appear in, this, in the court the same day as her funeral. So we obviously didn't go.
0: Here Lorraine says that three men were arrested. At the time, it seems only two men, Lawmore and Anthony, were arrested the third would not be implicated or even arrested for quite some time. At Anna Marie's funeral, she was buried with full honors. High-ranking police officials broke down at her graveside, and Police Commissioner at the time Paramol Naidu said that he was unhappy with where they were at that point with the investigation. Despite the two arrests, he said that there were too many unanswered questions. He vowed to her family that day that the SAPS would not stop until the truth about Anna Marie's murder was revealed and all the perpetrators involved were brought to book. Journalist Alex Ellisive, who covered Anna Marie's funeral, described how one of the woman's friends and co-workers, Superintendent Celeste van Klarhorst, had marched up to the grave and bravely saluted her friend. But once back in the crowd... She too broke down. Another colleague, Sandra Lloyd, had placed a squash racket on the flower-covered coffin. Squash, cycling and gardening were Potkita's passions. With their colleague laid to rest, it was time to seek justice for the woman who had only ever sought justice for others in her lifetime. Glormor and Anthony were denied bail but it would be another two and a half years before their
1: trial would begin. Then the trial started. During the trial, Dlomo told first that he was, he thought that Anmi was a very nice person as she had um, given him clothes and food before. And he went, waited for her. She went cycling that morning before she was going to leave to go write her exam, she went cycling. He waited for her to come back to the house. As she went into the house, he waited for the water to stop running in the bathroom. As he had keys to the house, he went into the house and he proceeded to go through to the bathroom where he knew she was and he shot her. He shot her three times. The first... Um, shot went through her spine, which obviously caused her not to be able to um, get up or protect herself. He then went outside and called justice and asked him to help him move the body. They took her body outside and they dumped it on the rubbish dump, covered her, one took the weapon, one took her car and they left.
0: So this is the first story that John Lormore had presented that he had indeed killed Anna-Marie and that his motive had been robbery. The revelation that the first bullet that had been fired into Anna-Marie's body had rendered her paralysed and defenceless was extremely difficult for her family to hear. The woman was a powerhouse. Had the gun not been involved, she would have taken down John Glow more easily. But she'd had no opportunity to do this and she'd been rendered utterly at his mercy. But the shocking evidence was not to end there. When Glomo was cross-examined, he suddenly had more information to share. And I want to stress that what you're about to hear is not my opinion, or even Lorraine's opinion. It is Lorraine reciting what John Glomo, the accused and eventually convicted killer of her sister, said under oath in a court of law.
1: During cross-examination, another story came to light, uh, which was then not accepted, as he had already told one story, so he was not allowed to change his story, um, because then the court doesn't accept that. During the second part of the trial, it came out that he said he was paid by Peter Don Brunt to kill Marie. He told Dlomo that he was married to Anna Marie, which was not the case, and that they had a lover's quarrel and he wanted her out the way. According to him, the Monday morning she went into town and he taught Dlomo how to use the weapon, showed him where it would be and gave him keys to the house.
0: It had emerged that Anna Marie had been shot with her own service weapon. She was not in the habit of keeping this weapon out in the open and it was always securely kept hidden no matter where she was. John Glomore would go on to claim that on Sunday the 15th of January his boss Peter Brunt had met with him and shown him the weapon, how to load it and fire it and told him where it was being kept. He told the court that Brunt had informed him that he would be away on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday and that Dlawmore should carry out the murder on Monday. Dlawmore, however, said that he had not done this, as he wanted to be sure he would get his money, and therefore decided to kill Anna Marie on the Tuesday instead, which was closer to when Brunt said he'd be returning home. The rest of his story, he said, was the same. After shooting Anna Marie and disposing of her body, he'd fled in her car. So what had changed in this second story was not really the facts of the crime, but rather the motive. Lawmore initially claimed he'd committed the crime as a robbery, whereas he was now painting it as a contract killing. Lawmore claimed that after Anna Marie's car had broken down in Harry Smith and he'd returned to Ferenikung, he'd tried to get his money out of Brunt, but he had never been paid and was arrested soon after the second version would not be accepted into evidence as he was deemed to be an unreliable witness. The trial proceeded with Dlormore's original confession as evidence and in September 2008, Dlormore would be found guilty and handed down a life sentence. But when Judge Margaret Victor read out her judgment, it would contain a section that raised eyebrows.
1: At the end of the hearing, Judge Margaret Victor stated that it was a contract killing orchestrated by Peter Don Brunt. She requested the police and the Department of Justice to investigate further
0: Excerpts from Judge Victor's judgment read as follows: Glomo shot Port Gita dead. For 5,000 Rand in a cold calculated contract killing orchestrated by Brunt. She also said that, quote, On Sunday, the 15th of January 2006, Dlaumor met Brunt on his small holding in Ferenichang, where they concluded an agreement that Dlaumor would kill Porkita for the sum of 5,000 Rand. End quote. She went on to say that, quote, Pursuant to the agreement, Brunt gave accused one, Dlomo, a firearm with 10 to 15 rounds of ammunition and showed him how to use the firearm, end quote. co-accused, Justice Anthony, was acquitted of all charges against him as it was found that there was insufficient evidence to prove that he knew there was a body in the wheelbarrow he'd helped to push to the rubbish dump. He was released. Judge Victor recommended that Lawmore should never be released on parole. Anna Marie's family were stunned. To them it seemed that if a High Court judge was including this evidence in her judgments, then surely further investigation was warranted. And further investigation did happen. Paperwork to which I have had access shows a series of questions seemingly included by a member of the prosecution which details several points that need to be clarified in order to proceed with the prosecution against anyone else in this matter. At the time of those documents being scanned in, only three of those inquiries had been ticked off as attended to. One of those questions was that investigators should view bank statements to determine whether money had passed hands from another as yet unidentified party to someone close to Anna-Marie, which may have been the actual motive for her murder. And this seemingly even more complex scenario, Lorraine says, is not entirely unbelievable. The cases that Anna-Marie was investigating were not just the ones that were made public knowledge. She was investigating child trafficking rings, pedophile and child abuse material rings not low-level stuff. Is it possible that someone who wanted her out of the picture would use someone close to her to arrange a hit? On the Friday after her death, Anna Marie was due to testify in a case against a local school principal who'd been accused of the sexual abuse of several school pupils. Anna Marie was a pivotal witness in that case because she'd found additional victims which would undoubtedly have put the man behind bars for a long time. Was that worth killing her over? Lorraine says that although they'd entered the courtroom on that day, thinking that they were going to close the chapter on the case, really, the fight for justice only started then. For years after Dlomo was sentenced, Lorraine pushed the investigator for news on her sister's case. Eventually, she was able to get that detective swapped out for one Detective Captain Masilela, who went in all guns blazing. Lorraine speaks fondly of the man's hard work and how it eventually came to fruition when Peter Don Brunt was arrested on charges of orchestrating Anna Marie's murder. Annotations in the paperwork I saw Show, however, that after the man's arrest, the NPA considered the evidence before them and decided that it was insufficient to proceed to trial. Masilela told Lorraine that he'd managed to locate a woman who claimed she had knowledge that might help secure a conviction. But the woman refused to testify, and although she could have been forced to, hostile witnesses are never a good idea. As I mentioned, A list of items that required further investigation was made, but we have no idea how far anyone got with that. Peter Don Brunt was released, and Anna Marie's family was advised that the NPA would not be pursuing prosecution at that time. And in the years since, they never have. We know that there definitely was a pretty deep look into the case after Dlormor's conviction, because about eight years after he was sent to Mangaun Correctional Centre to serve his sentence, he contacted Lorraine and asked her to go and see him. During that meeting, Lorraine says that the man begged her to ask police to stop asking questions. Lormore claimed he was receiving death threats and that his family were at risk too. Reporter Jill Gifford covered Lormore's trial from start to finish. The veteran journalist had actually known Anna-Marie quite well from other high-profile cases she'd worked on, which Gifford had covered. At the time of Glomore's sentencing, Gifford published an article detailing Judge Margaret Victor's judgment and included the judge's statement around Peter Brunt's alleged involvement. In 2011, three years after that article was published, Peter Don Brunt, brought a case of defamation against independent newspapers. In the suit, he claimed that he'd suffered irreparable damage to his reputation and that his fiancée at the time had even considered leaving him after coming across the article in which he felt he was painted as a murderer. He was asking for 500,000 rand in reparations. When the case was heard in the High Court, the judge determined that Independent Newspapers was not guilty of defaming Brunt's character. In fact, the judge said that the reporter had only been repeating what the judge had said in her own judgment, which was in the public domain, and the wording of that judgment did not explicitly say that the implication of Brunt was only part of Blormor's evidence, but rather, the heading under which the statement fell made it clear that the judge considered the implications to be fact. Therefore, Gifford was permitted to have reported on that. If Brunt wanted to have that statement completely rescinded from public record, he would have to take on High Court Judge Margaret Victor. Brunt claimed he'd initially wanted to do just that, but his attorney had advised against it, and they'd instead gone to bat against the newspaper. Brunt's claim of defamation was dismissed with costs, which meant that the man had to pay for the newspaper's lawyers, the high-profile law firm Weber Wenzel. Now, to be both clear and fair, Brunt's having lost this case does not prove his guilt; it just proves that reporters are allowed to report what is said in court without prejudice in some defamation cases the onus would be on the accused to prove they're not guilty of what is being claimed, and this is likely what Brunt would have had to prove if he took on Judge Margaret Victor directly in a defamation case. And actually, and I'll look into this more, as far as I can tell, judges in South Africa have immunity from procedural prosecution. In other words, they can't be sued by members of the public, although they can be held to account for their actions, through a disciplinary procedure. But even then, if Brunt applied to have Victor's judgment considered unfair, he would have to prove why it was unfair. Lorraine sat through this defamation trial too, hoping beyond hope that something would happen when yet another judge slammed down their proverbial gavel around her sister's murder. But eventually, she had to accept that if she continued to pour herself into the search for justice, soon there would be nothing left of her to give.
1: Even though that truth was spoken in court, nothing has happened. While well, Anne-Marie, who gave her life for the protection of the children of this country, was never honoured in that the Kingpin were prosecuted. We as a family have made peace with this. After 16 years, you have to make peace with this. You can't. It eats you up alive every single day. So we had to make peace with this and carry on in our lives. And I do know that he will be judged one day, be it on earth or in heaven, he will be judged. The worst part of this is that somebody who gave so much, who who had to suffer at the hands of whoever it might have been were never honored in the way of finding everybody or uh, digging until you've got the whole truth in this case. And that to me is the worst part of it, that there are so many cases in our country that does not get prosecuted to the full end because of, is it the lack of investigation Is it lack of funds? Is it lack of interest? I'm not sure which one it is, but it's definitely something that is stopping prosecutions from carrying on. And especially if it was your colleague, especially if it was somebody who who went for the goodness of others. After Anna Marie died, about 10 months after she passed away, she was awarded with the White Ribbon Award For the protection of women and children in South Africa. She was acclaimed in a lot of places. She was um, never put on the honorary role of the SAPS, she was not killed on duty.
0: As I start to wrap up my conversation with Lorraine, she tells me something that I hadn't known somehow seems to make this case all the more horrific.
1: Like I say, we will never ever know the whole truth. As to why she was shot three times, being naked in the bath, being at your most vulnerable, I think, as a woman, um, dragged out onto a rubbish dump in January, covered with corrugated iron sheets and left there to die all by herself. I think also knowing that she was shot at about 9 o'clock after 9 and the post-mortem results revealed that she only died at about 5 o'clock that afternoon. As she was shot through her spine, she couldn't move. So us as a family prefer to believe that the shot to her head um, caused her to be brain dead and that it was only her organs that were still alive but that she was not there anymore.
0: Anna Marie lay on that rubbish dump for at least eight hours before her body completely shut down and she died. None of the bullet wounds immediately killed her according to the pathologist but she was paralysed. She couldn't move. As Lorraine says we can only hope that she also had no consciousness during that time. I cannot explain to you the anger that flooded through me when I heard that. Nobody deserves that. Least of all someone who dedicated their entire life to the service of children. I asked Lorraine whether, if the funds were available, she would consider private criminal prosecution in this case.
1: You know why I didn't do that? I think if I had the funds, I would have done it. But eventually you get to a point where you you can't keep on fighting this for the rest of your life. I think I stopped it for my parents' sake. I had a nervous breakdown the December after she died with pushing this thing and fight. you fight into a brick wall. And um, then my mom and dad basically, my dad passed away 12 years ago. And one of the last things he said to me was, just leave it now. And um, I think my parents saw that it affected me very badly. And and I was, I, I mean, at one stage, I wasn't a mom, I, was, I wasn't I was a wife. I was just fighting. It's so all I did is I was trying to fight for justice. And I think that's why I stopped. If I had the money then, I, I probably would have done it. But um, yeah, I then stopped. But my mom and dad are both deceased now.
0: Private criminal prosecution is being used more and more, but it's expensive and most people can't afford it. Lorraine's parents wanted justice for Anna Marie just as much as she did, but I think they were watching Lorraine fade into a shadow of herself as she dedicated more and more time and energy to the cause, and eventually they were terrified at the prospects of losing another daughter in the pursuit of justice for the one they'd already lost. And Lorraine expresses how when she sees headlines now about a murder having been committed, she sees that headline in a completely different light to most people.
1: Because she knows. You know that when I read um, of a murder, well I mean when Marie was killed it was like headline news and that, but uh, some murders don't even get the you know the back pages the thing I immediately think is people say I'm sorry for your loss and but I think if you lose somebody naturally it's bad enough but to go through this and so many questions that I always say oh my word these people are only at the beginning now you've got years and years of trying to process this because you can't just mourn this life that's gone you know It's the unfairness of it. It's the, you know, who gave you the right to take her out of our lives, you know?
0: Despite her having closed the door on fighting for justice for her sister, when I asked Lorraine how she would feel if she woke up tomorrow morning and the NPA had decided that further prosecutions were in order, she said she would have a party. And I think the fact that she reached out to me and wanted Anna Marie's story to be told. Tells me that although the door may be closed, there's still a window in her heart that's open to hope.
1: Yeah, I just want people to remember. I want people to, um, because you know what? At the funeral, like Commissioner Naidu, he was like, "No stone will be left unturned." And you know what? They they move on, and they forget, and I just feel that you know. Um, people need to realize that there are so many people who never get prosecuted families who never get an answer because um, people are supposed to do this job just give up we had an amazing fire masilela who was absolutely amazing you need somebody and everybody can't phone everybody's not a high profile case so you can't just phone the you know the commissioner and say i demand somebody else but um, why are there so many pe- and it's me talking coming from a police family, why are there so many who just don't give it all anymore? You know, they don't give it their all. And so many people just never get answers. And so many of these criminals just get away. You know, it it also feels that so much time has gone past. Um sometimes you're scared of forgetting stuff, you know. Um, ah, she was just amazed. She I mean, she wasn't perfect, nobody's perfect. But she was just, and the, you know, the worst part is is that missing of her all the time, you know? Like, my, I've just become a granny yoga, and you like wanna, you know, she would have loved that because she loved my kids and my sister's son. And now, you know, all those things that you just miss.
0: Captain Anna Marie Porquita. Ach, you know what? The SAPS can come for me if they want to for mistitling her. I'm going to refer to her as. Superintendent Anna-Marie Portita, Because in her heart, when she died, that's who she was. That was the promotion she was promised before it and everything else was ripped away from her. Superintendent Anna-Marie Porquita was just 39 years old. She had dreamed of serving the people of this country since she was a child, and she did. She did work that most of us cannot even fathom, saw atrocities that we all look away from, and in the end, her death seems mired in the very injustice she fought so hard against. Maybe John Blomore really did act alone, although it seems highly unlikely that an 18 year old who had until then quite happily been living and working as a gardener would suddenly one day decide to kill someone on a whim and then go to the trouble of hiding her body but still leave a bloodied bathroom behind. I guess it's possible. Lots of things are possible. It's also very possible that there really was someone else maybe even several other people behind her murder. That, at least in my mind, seems far more likely. Whoever wanted her dead, whether it's or someone else, got what they wanted. Anna Marie was killed that January morning, but her voice wasn't. Her voice, her cry for justice lives on in every child she saved in every life she made better in her sisters and in her colleagues who will never forget her i can only hope that her voice is also still loud enough to the person or people responsible for her death an unending whisper in the dark As they try to lay their heads down to sleep or find any rest or peace in their lives. Was it worth it? Are you happy now? Superintendent Anna Marie Porquita. Rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 87, The Murder of Captain Anna-Marie Porquita. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media, We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.